Well, good morning, church family. What a great day to worship together this morning. We want to give a shout out to everyone who's downstairs in the fellowship hall making space for us upstairs to let them know we haven't forgotten about them. And uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1222. And Lord willing, if there's any voice left, I'm going to preach this passage to us this morning. About halfway through the singing, I thought, oh, I better stop. <laughs> i got to have a voice here in a few minutes. So, uh, great music. 1 Corinthians 15. And I want to speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject of first importance. And we'll begin reading in verse number 1. And this is what the Word of God says. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Chapters in the Bible do not compete for importance. But if there is one chapter that is more important or rises to top, the top of all the others, it is certainly 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul establishes the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as an undeniable fact of history. For at the heart of the Christian gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the singular doctrine that elevates Christianity above all other world religions. For no other religion in our world is based on the historical fact of a bodily resurrection. And through his resurrection, Christ demonstrated that he does not stand in a long line of peers with Buddha, Muhammad, or any other religious leader. For only Jesus Christ himself has the power to not only lay down his life, but he also has the power to raise it up again. And because it is the cornerstone of the gospel, the resurrection has been the target of Satan's greatest attacks. And I would remind every single one of us this morning that without the resurrection, there is no hope. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Without the resurrection, salvation could not be provided. 
And without belief in the resurrection, salvation cannot be received. Therefore, it is impossible to be a Christian and not believe in the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there were some in the Corinthian church who, because they were influenced by their pagan past, were denying the truth of the resurrection. As a result, others in the church were being led astray and they were being shaken to the very core of their faith. And it was this unbelief in the church that prompted Paul, under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to write the most complete explanation of resurrection truth in 1 Corinthians 15 to be found anywhere. And against this backdrop, the Apostle Paul climbs the heights of inspiration as he anticipates the glorious resurrection which awaits every believer who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in these first 11 verses of this monumental chapter, the Apostle Paul declares the resurrection of Jesus Christ to be of first importance. So would you notice with me, first of all in the passage, the proclamation of the resurrection. It's found at the beginning of verse 1 where Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. It's found in the middle of verse 3 where he says, For I delivered it to you. And it is found in verse 11 where he says, Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. These verses refer to the Apostle Paul's initial first five years and visit to the Corinthian people when he began his year and a half ministry among them. And in these verses, you'll notice that Paul is not giving the Corinthians new instruction. Rather, he is reminding them of what they have already heard through his ministry. And he tells them and he tells us that Paul's ministry was a ministry of proclamation. That when he arrived in Corinth, he preached to the Corinthians. And through his authoritative preaching, not something of his own imagination, the Apostle Paul delivered what God had authored, namely the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the gospel. This is why we have gathered today to sing and to celebrate the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is the only gospel. There is only one gospel to proclaim, and anything else that is proclaimed, it comes from the preacher's imagination and innovation. And because there is only one gospel, this gospel must be constantly and consistently proclaimed if people are ever to believe and to be saved through its message. For without the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there are no Christians. It is impossible to be one without it. For it is this proclamation of Christ's life and death and burial and his work that separates the living from the dead. This is the only true gospel that must be proclaimed. And to believe any other gospel is to believe a false gospel, and it is to believe in vain. So Paul not only declares the proclamation of the resurrection in verses 3 and 4, he also declares the priority of the resurrection. And this is uh, what he writes in those verses. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, 
that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And in these two verses, Paul is reminding the Corinthians that the message that he had delivered to them, he also received himself. Because before you can proclaim the gospel, you must have received the gospel. Now notice, this gospel message that Paul delivered is not just important. Paul says in these verses that it is of first importance. It is of utmost priority. Because all that we believe hinges on this gospel truth. And in these two verses, Paul makes five simple statements emphasizing and reminding us of the priority of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in verse 3, he says that there is a death to be remembered. He said that Christ died. Now, you will notice that Paul does not mention the life of Jesus. Absent in this text are the virgin birth in Bethlehem, the silent years of his boyhood in Nazareth, His teaching and miracles on the hillsides of Judea and Galilee and the confrontations with the Pharisees in the streets and temple courts of Jerusalem. Paul bypasses in this passage Christ's earthly life and he takes us straight to the cross. For the Bible teaches that the Lord Jesus Christ died on a cross. And in the days of Jesus... Crosses were used to punish criminals. Criminals were placed on a cross. And Jesus died publicly like a criminal on a cross. But what makes Jesus' death so unusual is that his death was undeserved. When we read the New Testament and we study Christ's life, we discover that he did nothing, nothing to deserve the death of a criminal. Jesus never sinned. And if Jesus never sinned, why was he treated as a criminal and why was he nailed to a cross? Well, when we read about the cross, we should read read it with ourselves in mind. For the Bible says that we are the ones who were guilty. We are the ones who should have been treated like a criminal. We are the ones who should have been nailed to a cross. We are the ones who deserve to die for our sins. But the glorious truth of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, who was innocent, died so that you and I, who are guilty, can live. And this is the message of the gospel. Jesus Christ voluntarily took our place on the cross of Calvary when he died. But he also tells us that there's not only a death to remember, there's a debt to remember. That he died, Paul says, for our sins. And with this phrase, Paul takes us to the crucifixion. Many people were crucified by the Romans, but Christ's death was different from all of the rest. Jesus did not die for his own sins. He was sinless. He died for our sins. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. He died for the sins of the world. And the prophet Isaiah reminds us that Christ took our place and Christ bore our judgment. And in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5, listen to the language that the prophet uses to describe why Jesus died. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. This is a very simple but profound statement of our Savior's substitutionary death as the sufficient sacrifice for your sins and for mine. 
on the cross, Jesus Christ paid the debt that our sin owed. So it was a death to remember and a debt to remember. And in verse 4, he says it was a deed to remember. He says that he was buried. And with this phrase, Paul takes us to the cemetery. Now, some people say that Christ was really dead when he was placed in the tomb. But there are others who are more skeptical. And they say that he merely fainted while he was hanging on the cross. And that when they took him off the cross and they put him in that damp, dark, cold tomb, the coolness and the dampness of the tomb revived him and brought him back to life. That he never really died. And I want to say to you this morning that you may be here just because a family member invited you or a friend invited you. And you may come to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ with the same skepticism. And I have to say to you that in order to believe anything else other than that Jesus literally physically died and literally physically rose from the grave... You would have to believe that Jesus, who was nailed to the cross for six hours and had a spear thrust into his side to puncture his heart, was taken down from the cross, was bound in grave garments that weighed approximately 75 pounds of spices. He was placed in a tomb. He was sealed with a huge stone, and he was guarded by Roman soldiers. This Jesus would have had to have removed all of his grave garments, removed the stone, evaded the soldiers, and gone and sneaked into the upper room where the disciples were meeting and said, I'm alive. That's what you would have to believe if you didn't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to say to you with utmost certainty this morning, friends, that Jesus Christ literally physically died. And Jesus Christ literally, physically was buried. Those who took him from the cross and prepared him for burial knew that he was dead. That's why they buried him. And I want to remind you this morning that without the death of Jesus, there would be no sacrifice to pay for your sins. There would be no satisfaction of the wrath of God for your sin. There would be no goodness deposited into you from Jesus Christ's life. There would be no forgiveness and there would be no reconciliation. Oh, it is a deed to remember. He also tells us in verse 4, that it's a day to remember that he was raised on the third day. And with this phrase, Paul takes us to the calendar. The Bible teaches clearly that Jesus was beaten, that Jesus was scourged to the bone, that he was crowned with thorns, that he was spit upon, that he was mocked, and that he was nailed to a cross. The Bible teaches that he was taken down dead and he was buried. And when they buried him after his death, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The Bible says that when he died on the cross, the earth shook and the rocks split and graves opened wide. And the message seemed to be on all accounts that Jesus was defeated. And the tomb was closed upon him. It was sealed and it was guarded. It was all over seemingly. Death had seemingly triumphed. But Paul reminds us that three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. Now, don't miss this this morning. 
the language that Paul uses in this text, the tense of the language that he uses, emphasizes that today, 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ still lives. And he moves and he works in his churches and in people's lives. And John, one of his followers, got a glimpse of this truth. In the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him. And in Revelation 1.18, this is what Jesus said to him. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. And the only person that could hold the keys to death and Hades is the one who has conquered death and risen victorious. It is the resurrection of Christ that satisfies God the Father's judgment and justice for sin. And in the resurrection of Christ, we see God the Father accept His Son's work on our behalf. Christ's bodily resurrection declares to the world that sin, death, hell, Satan, all of it has been defeated. And without the resurrection of Christ, there would be no guarantee of these realities. There would be no victory over sin and death. There would be no conquering of the devil. There would be no eternal life. Oh, friends, but because Jesus died and rose again, we can be assured that if we confess our sins and turn from them and trust Christ as our Savior, when we die, we will rise again and spend eternity with him. It was a day to be remembered. Finally, in verse 4, you'll see it was a detail to remember. He says, Paul says that all of this truth took place in accordance with the Scriptures. The Word of God testifies over and over to the fact of the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Paul says, according to the Scriptures, he is referring to the Old Testament Scriptures. And over and over again in the Old Testament, either directly or indirectly, literally, or in figures of speech, the Old Testament promised and foretold and looked into the future of the life, the death, and the burial of Jesus Christ. That's why one scholar described the testimony of the Scriptures concerning Christ's bodily resurrection this way. He said, The resurrection of Christ so penetrates the literature of the New Testament that if you lifted out every passage in which a reference is made to the resurrection, you would have a collection of writings so mutilated that what remained could no longer be understood. It is a proven fact. Of history, friends. Jesus Christ rose from the grave. So Paul not only declares the proclamation of the resurrection and the priority of the resurrection, he also declares the proofs of the resurrection in verses 5 through 9. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the best proved fact in history. And in verses 5 through 9, Paul gives historical evidences of the resurrection of Christ that have never been successfully discounted. I want you to notice in the text in verses 5 through 8, he uses one phrase over and over again. It's the word or the phrase, he appeared. The Bible consistently speaks of Jesus' appearing or of him manifesting himself after his resurrection. 
that he was known and recognized by those whom he chose to reveal himself. And the record shows that he revealed himself to all of his followers. That's why Luke summarized his appearing after his resurrection this way in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. He says he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He appeared to them over 40 days. So who does Paul tell us as proof that Jesus appeared to? Well, notice in verse 5, he was seen by his friends and that he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is Peter. Jesus appeared to Peter, the very one who denied him three times. And in going to Peter first, Jesus emphasized his grace. Could you imagine if you were, Jesus, if you were Peter saying to the Lord just hours before he was crucified, I'll never deny you. I will go with you anywhere. And Jesus looking at him and saying before the crowth, uh, makes noise three times, you will deny me three times? Could you imagine being that man? And the grace that displayed on the Lord Jesus Christ's face and life as he appeared to Peter? Peter had forsaken Jesus, but Jesus had not forsaken him. And Christ appeared to Peter because he loved Peter. And he appeared to Peter to extend grace to him and to change his life. And the Bible tells us that Peter, in the beginning, denied Christ. But in the end, he became the greatest warrior for the church. And church history has it that he was crucified, but he was crucified upside down because he didn't feel he was worthy of being crucified the same way his Lord was. He appeared to his friends. In verse 5 and verse 7, he was seen by his followers. Paul says, then to the twelve and then to all the apostles. Jesus appeared to the disciples, and he appeared to the apostles. And the Bible teaches that his followers did not expect to see him because they locked themselves in a room. They were worried that they were going to be arrested and experience the same fate that Jesus had. And this is how Luke records Jesus' appearing to his followers in Luke chapter 24 and verse 36. And Luke says, and as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. Could you imagine being in that room, locked up, hiding out, afraid to be arrested, and Jesus all of a sudden appearing? They were shocked. They were amazed. And he appeared to them again on the seashore, and he had breakfast with them, John says. They ate a meal together, and he fellowshiped with his followers after his resurrection and those who followed him and whom the Lord used to establish his church and spread the gospel all over the world saw firsthand his resurrected body they were honest capable reliable witnesses to the most important event in all of history he appeared to his followers in verse 6 he was seen by his flock Paul says, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. This verse is so important because there's no other occasion recorded where Jesus appeared before such a vast number of people to testify to the fact of his resurrection. 
And when Paul says most of whom are still alive, he's referring to these witnesses who were alive at the time of this writing. But notice something even more significant in this verse. Don't miss it. It's so good. He refers to the brothers who are no longer alive. Do you see it? As having fallen asleep. That is a consistent description that the Bible uses over and over for people who have trusted in Christ for their salvation when they die. And the Bible is trying to teach us something. The Bible is teaching us that as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can also look forward to the fact that if our sins are forgiven and if we've trusted Christ as our Savior, when we die, we're going to rise again just like Jesus did. Therefore, the Bible says when a believer dies, they merely fall asleep. The Bible would describe it this way. When you die as a believer in Christ, you're more alive than you've ever been because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And all of this was gained on your behalf and my behalf because of Jesus' resurrection. Death no longer has a hold on us. We merely take a nap. In verse 7, he says that he was seen by his family. Oh, don't miss this. Then he appeared to James. James was the half-brother of Jesus. And James, while Jesus was alive, was a skeptic. He didn't believe in his brother. Could you imagine growing up with Jesus and Mary and Joseph looking at you if you were James and saying, why can't you be more like your brother? Why can't you listen and obey like he does? And he didn't believe. But now, his brother appears to him. And James believes. And I want to say to you this morning that it is highly possible in this room or even downstairs that you're here today because a family member or a friend invited you. And the only reason why you're here today is because of that invitation, because you're like James. You're skeptic. Is this really true? Could this really be true? I don't understand what all the fuss is, but I'm going to come to do a kind act for my family. I've prayed for you. Many in this church have prayed for you that in this moment, even right now, while I'm speaking the word of God to you, that you would have a moment like James and that you would be utterly convinced through the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that what Jesus said and did was true and that you would come to believe in Jesus just as James did. Oh, your wife is praying, sir, that that would happen to you. Your husband is praying for you, ma'am, that you would come to believe. Your children are praying and pleading that God in his mercy and grace in this very moment would remove the scales from your eyes and you would see the hope in Jesus Christ that has been sung to you this morning, the hope that is being proclaimed to you. And I say to you in your skepticism today, what is your hope in life and death if you don't have Jesus Christ? I would submit to you this morning, you have no hope. There is no hope apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so maybe today is the day that you become a member of the family of God. In verses 8 and 9, he was seen by his foe. 
Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. In verses 8 and 9, you'll notice Paul no longer talks about other people. He gets very personal, and he begins telling us about himself. And he tells us what Christ's resurrection means in his life. And he adds his own testimony to the authenticity of all of the other testimonies of the fact of Christ's resurrection. And when he describes himself as one untimely born, he's contrasting his background to that of the other apostles. The other apostles had been handpicked and chosen and trained and developed at the feet of Jesus. Paul, on the other hand, was brought into the apostleship later in life on a dramatic encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ himself in a very sudden, unusual, violent way. And here's the importance of this. No reasonable explanation can be found for Paul's conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ other than the fact that Jesus Christ in his resurrection appeared to Paul. His previous character as a persecutor made him feel a profound sense of humility and unworthiness. That's why he described himself as the least of the apostles. The other apostles knew Jesus intimately. They lived with him. They saw his miracles. They heard his teaching. Peter may have denied him. Thomas may have doubted him. But Paul is the one who persecuted him. And he is testifying to this fact that he saw the bodily resurrection of Christ himself and he was forever changed. He went from being a persecutor of the church to a preacher to the church. All of these verses testify to one simple truth. There is proof in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul not only declares the proclamation of the resurrection and the priority of the resurrection and the proofs of the resurrection, he also declares the power of the resurrection. Look in verse 10. In verse number 10, he says this, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul is testifying in verse 10 to the power of the transforming effect that the resurrection has on people's lives. And in verse 10, he's describing his own transformation. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says, brought about three changes in his life. Notice them with me. Number one, it brought about a recognition of his sin. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul saw himself as he really was, a sinner in need of a Savior. Paul, when he encountered the resurrected Christ, saw for the first time in his life the truth and the reality that the Bible teaches that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That every single person who has ever been born into this world has been born with a sinful nature. And that sinful nature corrupts every part of our life. And that sinful nature holds us into the bondage of our sin. And no matter how hard we try, no matter how many good leaves we turn over, no matter how hard we try to be a good person, we in and of ourselves can never undo our sinful nature. 
That's why he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Because it is the grace of God through the power of the resurrection of Christ that changed Paul's life. It changed him from persecuting to believing and to serving and to ministering to others. And it is only by this grace that you and I can be forgiven of our sins and that our lives can be transformed just like Paul's. It was grace through the resurrection of Christ that saved Paul. But secondly, he had a revolution of character. Look at what he says in verse 10. And his grace toward me was not in vain. God's grace was not in vain in Paul's life. It was this same grace that saved him that transformed him. It changed his character, and it changed the course and the direction of his life. He was changed from the greatest persecutor to the greatest defender of the faith. His life was transformed from one who was characterized by self-righteous hatred to one who was characterized by self-giving love. God changed Paul from an oppressor to a servant, from a persecutor to a preacher, from a judge to a friend, from a taker of life to a giver of life. Now listen carefully to me, friends. Here's the principle we draw from his testimony in verse 10. If there's no change in your life, there's no Christ in your life. I've shown you verse after verse after verse this morning in this text of how Scripture and people who are mentioned in Scripture testify to the reality of Christ's resurrection transforming power. In other words, if you will, every single person who's ever encountered Jesus Christ in a saving way has been changed. Their life becomes different. That's how you know you're a Christian. And if you've never had this revolution of character in your life, if you've never had this change in your life, if nobody in your life says to you, you are different, it's probably because you don't have Christ. No change. No Christ. Third, he had a redirection of energy. He says at the end of verse 10, On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. The grace of God, friends, does not create laziness. It actually works in us and leads us to a dip, deeper devotion and commitment to Christ. And Paul's testimony is that when he met the resurrected Christ, it radically changed his character and it radically changed the direction and the course of his life. He used to oppose God, now he serves God. And some scholars estimate, listen to this, that he traveled 17 to 20 miles every day in his ministry, ministering to people. That he covered over 5,880 miles on foot and over 6,770 miles by sea to take the gospel that transformed him everywhere and to serve God. And the point of it is all of this. When your life has been changed by the gospel, you have new desires. You have a new purpose, and you have a new direction for your life. That's my testimony. Is it your testimony? I can't tell you how many times I changed my major my first two years of college. 
until God radically changed my life through his son and gave me a clear purpose and direction for my life. And he took a young boy who was timid and shy and afraid to stand up in front of people and with his sense of humor, put him in a pulpit. That is a dramatic reversal of life. It is a dramatic change in direction and purpose and passion and living. And that is also how you know you've encountered the resurrected Christ. There is a dramatic reversal in your life. It's what happened to Paul. It's what happened to me. I wonder if it's happened to you. Well, Paul not only declares the proclamation of the resurrection and the priority of the resurrection and the proofs of the resurrection and the power of the resurrection, finally, he declares the proper response to the resurrection. Look at the beginning of the passage in verse 1 and verse 2, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. The Apostle Paul took the Corinthians, and he takes you and me back to the fundamental question of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian in our day and age seems to be anyone who claims to be one, no matter what their life testifies to, and no matter what their beliefs testify to. That you can just claim it, and there it is. But Paul has no such ambiguity in his definition of a Christian. In verses 1 and 2, he says the Christian is one who has heard and believed a definite message. And they subscribe wholeheartedly to a certain body of truth. The gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is what he says. This is the response to everything that I've proclaimed to you this morning. It is, first of all, to be received. He says in verse 1, which you received. And it's personal, isn't it? You received it. Somebody can't receive it for you. Somebody can't believe it in proxy for you. You, you individually must have an encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. You must receive this message. This is how a person is forgiven of their sins. It's how they're saved. It's how they're given the promise of eternal life. It's how they're given a new life. You hear this gospel that has been proclaimed to you, and you receive it for yourself. Secondly, he says you stand in this gospel. In verse 1, he says, in which you stand. He's saying not only did the Corinthians receive this word, they stood on this word as the assurance of their salvation. They believed it. They put their whole life on this truth, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They stood in it. And I'll remind you this morning, this is the only solid ground on which to stand. The gospel must be 
the foundation of your life. It's strong enough to build your life on it. It's strong enough to build your family on it. It's strong enough to build your marriage on it. It's strong enough to build your career on it. It is strong enough for every single area of your life. And you don't just receive it. You take it to heart. You believe it. And you stand firm in it. And you never, ever, ever let go of it. And it's this gospel truth that enables you to stand. And I would say to you this morning, if you're struggling with everything that is going on in the world around you and you feel like you're just sinking and you're drowning, it just might be because you're not standing in the gospel. The gospel is your only firm foundation. And so you got to hear it and you got to receive it. And then you got to stand on it and put your whole life in it. That it'll keep you to the end. Number three, he says in verse two, you have to be saved by it and by which you are being saved. I'll remind you of a simple truth this morning. There's only two people in this building today. Those who are saved and those who are lost. And the only difference between those two types of people are what you've done with the Lord Jesus Christ and with his gospel. You're either saved from your sin this morning and reconciled to the God who created you, or you are still dead and lost in the trespasses of your sin, alienated from the God who created you. Now notice what the text says. The text says you are being saved. i got to teach you theology real quick. When the Bible talks about salvation, it talks about it in three tenses. That you have been saved in the past, You are being saved in the present, and you will be saved in the future. And here's what that means. When you confess your sin, and you turn away from it, and you believe on Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for you to save you, the Bible says that you've been saved from your past. And here's what I know. I've lived long enough to know this. Every single one of us has a past. All of us. Some of it may be worse than others, but all of us have a past. And when Jesus died on the cross and was buried in the tomb and rose from the grave, he died for your past, and all that's forgiven. So you're saved from your past. You never have to worry about that again. Jesus covered it in his blood. You're saved presently. So that means all the sins that you commit today, covered in the blood of Jesus. He died for them. And you're saved in the future All the sins you'll commit the rest of your life till you die, Jesus died for those too. And so you're covered under his blood. And you're not only saved from all those things. Listen, you're saved in such a way that you're guaranteed heaven. And so you receive it and you stand on it. I'm standing on the resurrection of Christ. And it saves you. You believe it. And then number four, he says, you hold fast. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul is teaching that once you truly come to Christ as your Savior, you never lose your salvation. And he is also teaching that some people actually believe in vain. What does he mean by that? He means some people believe in Jesus in a non-saving way. Well, could you uh, explain that to me, Pastor? I will explain that to you. The word vain that he uses here literally means without due consideration. It means in a haphazard manner. It's describing a faith that is not real, a belief that does not produce change in your life. 
And Paul is revealing the possibility that a person may say they believe for it only to be revealed later that their belief was mere mental assent to some facts and that their belief did not translate into a change in their life or a change in their character. In other words, it is possible to have faith that is so superficial that you accept everything that has been proclaimed to you this morning as a way to escape judgment and hell, but not as a way to want Jesus as your Savior. Could I say it to you this way? You could give mere mental assent. You could be sitting there today and just say right along with me, Amen, Pastor. Amen, Pastor. That's right. That's true. That's true. That's true. And leave here feeling really good about yourself and all that you experienced today. And then tomorrow morning when you get up, you just go on living the way you've always been living. You've never changed. There's no change in your character. There's no change in your attitude. You still treat your, your wife the same way you've always treated her. You're rough. You're harsh. You're not tender. You're not kind. You keep talking the same way that you talk. You keep treating people the same way you treat them. There is no change in your character. And Paul is saying to you this morning, if that is the description of your life, you believed in vain. You just came and you gave it mere mental assent and it had no changing, revolutioning effect on your character or your life. You're still living the way you've always lived. That's believing in vain. It doesn't mean that you're perfect, friends, but it does mean that there is a distinct change in your life. A distinct change. And without that change, it's empty. I've been a pastor for a long time, and here's what I know. Too many people are resting their eternity on a prayer they prayed or an aisle they walked down or their grandmother's prayers or their mother's prayers to get them to heaven. And they're not resting on the fact that they've encountered Jesus Christ. They've received him. They're standing in him. They're holding fast to him, and their life has been changed. That is the true gospel, friends. There is no other gospel. There isn't one. So if you're resting on anything other than that, you're resting in vain. You're resting in emptiness. Continuing to follow Jesus, continuing to serve him, no matter what happens in your life, is a sign of true saving faith. And Jesus taught about this. He taught about it in the parable of the soils. He talked about how a sower went out to sow, and he had a bag of seed, and he threw it around, and it went on four different types of soil. And only one of the soils that the seed went on did it take root and bear fruit. The rest withered away. Was he saying? Belief in vain. No change in your life. No change. No Christ. It is possible to give mere mental assent to the facts of the gospel and never be changed by the gospel. I want you to avoid that today. I want you to hear it. I want you to receive it. I want you to stand on it. I want you to hold fast to it. It's your only hope in life. And it's your only hope in death. And so I ask you this morning, dear friend, 
Is the resurrection of Jesus Christ real to you? Is it real to you? Can you sing the words of the songs that we sung today with joy and hope and peace because you're singing about your own life and what Christ has done? Is it real to you? Have you received this gospel message? Are you standing on this gospel message? Are you being saved by this gospel message? Are you different today because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The Bible says in Romans 10, 13, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That if you'll believe in your heart the Lord Jesus Christ and that God raised him from the dead, and you'll confess with your mouth that you are a sinner, he will hear your prayer and save you. And if you have never confessed your sin to God, if you've never turned away from your sin and turned to Christ, if you've never believed on Christ for your eternal salvation in heaven, won't you come to Jesus today? He died for you so that you could live in him. Let's pray.